And Daryl and I will be reading this morning from Jeremiah 52, verses 1 through 16. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamatal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Joachim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end he thrust them from his presence. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon, where he put him in prison till the day of his death. On the tenth day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, or these names are something else, aren't they? Commander of the Imperial Guard who served the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the Imperial Guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the garden, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, along with the rest of the craftsmen and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar left behind the rest of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. So my name is Pastor Matt. I'm one of the shepherds here, and uh, next week I'll be continuing preaching in the Gospel of Mark. But today, one of my good friends, Dan Layman, will be preaching. And before, Dan had been married for 17 years to Jen, had three daughters. Before, all that to say, we met at a freshman Bible study at Iowa State University um, 20 years ago. Wow, look at that. And since then, he's served as a chemical engineer. He's served as a local church pastor. He's back to serving as an engineer again. Um, but he's been a friend. And I can remember times in his dorm room where I was a weary college student trying to walk with Jesus. And I would confess sin, and this man would remind me of the grace of Jesus Christ and to cling to the faith. And he's been a friend for many years, and he's encouraged me. And I pray that through the preaching of the word, he would encourage you today. So let me pray for my brother and for us. Lord God, in your grace, you, uh, for 
2,000 years have chosen to proclaim your word through human beings. And the gospel goes forth. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. For it is through hearing that we believe. It is through believing that we have hope and salvation and life. And so I pray. I pray, God, for my brother now as he talks about some of the gifts that you hand to us along the ways of suffering and doubt and fear when life uh, feels more like a destructed city. Lord, we have a God who is good. And we have a God in his grace who has sent his son to die. And out of the most ugly, brutal event in history, life sprung. And so you are a mysterious, beautiful, wonderful God. And we want to know you better today through your word. We want to trust you. Even when we don't know the way, we can know that you are good. So bless Dan in the preaching of your word for your glory. Um, we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. I took that. All right. Did I get this turned on yet? Is it working? All right. Good. Um, well, thank you so much for letting me be here today. Um, thanks for that great music. That was wonderful to worship, uh, worship together. Um, yeah, so like Matt said, um, he and I have known each other for a while now, and uh, since I'm a stranger to most of you, I thought I'd give you a little context as I share, because it's going to be, I'm going to share some personal stuff as we go through um, the Word of God together today. So uh, my life has been strangely parallel to Matt's in a lot of ways. He went to Iowa State together. Uh, we went to seminary at the same time, different seminaries, but at the same time, parallel tracks. Uh, we started pastoring at the same time in, in uh, you know, small to moderately sized free churches. Um, and, uh, and we did that, kind of kept on those parallel tracks up to last year, when I was the one who diverged from the script and uh, stepped down from ministry for a while. Uh, so I, like Matt said, I'm back working a secular job. I work in the environmental department of an ethanol manufacturing facility. And, uh, you know, I, I always have to say when I, you know, mention to church people that I stepped down from my job, there wasn't a big scandal, there was no, uh, no problem, it was just a time for something different. Uh, and it has been a change, it's been a change for, for me, for my family. Uh, and it's not exaggerating to say that this last year has been one of the most difficult years of our lives, uh, for a lot of reasons, not just because of the job change. Uh, but, but stepping away from preaching week in and week out has given me some perspective some fresh perspective. And, and one, of the, one of the funny things about being a preaching pastor uh, is that Sunday is always coming, right? You, you finish a sermon and then, hey, you have to do it again in seven days. Um, and it has to be different. You can't just get up and say the same thing that you did the week before. Um, and, and now, as long as you stick to the Bible and, and you know, kind of preach through the Bible and uh, you, you've always got stuff to say, and you know, all the true things to say, as long as you're sticking to what the Bible says. Um, but sometimes, at least in my experience, uh, you, you say things that are truer than you might realize at the moment. You, you say things that, uh, that maybe you don't fully understand. And I think that's one of the dangers that I've experienced in being a preacher, is that you can stand up here and you can confidently proclaim true things, things that are in the Bible, things that you think you understand in the moment, but that you don't fully understand. And sometimes God has to step in and say, hey, hey, buddy, uh, you need to slow down. 
and need to let your life, let your soul catch up with where your brain is. And I feel like that's been happening to me this year. So when Matt invited me to preach, I knew it wasn't time to write a new sermon, but maybe revisit one that I preached about 18 months ago. Because I think in some ways my soul is, is catching up with the truth that I shared that Sunday, and I'd like to share it with you again. Uh, so I'm just going to pray again, and we'll look at the Word of God. Uh, Father, thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness, um, as we sang over and again this morning, and as we see in your Word uh, today, you are faithful, you are good, and so we just trust you uh, for this next period of time together that you would do what you want to do, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, my goal today is pretty simple. I just want to explain why the book of Lamentations is in your Bible. First of all, um, maybe, maybe my first point is just that Lamentations is in your Bible. Um, it's a tiny book. It's right after Jeremiah. It's a postscript to Jeremiah, which is why I had uh, asked those guys to, to read from the end of Jeremiah today, because that, that sets the stage for the whole book of Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations is this tiny book. It's uh, very neglected, I think, at least in my experience. Before I studied it and preached on it, I'd never read a book about it. I'd never heard a sermon on it. You're probably in, in the same boat. I had memorized uh, one verse from it. It's the verse that inspired the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. But beyond that, nothing. I didn't know anything about Lamentations. Uh, you could argue that people haven't paid much attention to Lamentations because it is small. It is a tiny Old Testament book, just five chapters long, tucked between these two major prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But Jonah's only four chapters long, and somehow we all know that story. So why don't we study Lamentations? Well, it's not a big mystery. I think it's, it's pretty obvious. We don't study Lamentations because the book is just so darn sad. Is there in the title, Lamentations. It's a book of lament, a collection of sad poems that express the pain of a great tragedy. Why in the world would we want to spend time studying and reading and meditating on a book of sad poetry? Why, why is that even in the Bible? Nobody wants to feel sad. Nobody wants to be exposed to sad things if you can help it. And, and beyond being sad, Lamentations is actually disturbing. It's disturbing. It talks about terrible things. It shakes us out of our comfort zone and forces us to look at how terrible life really can be. Reading Lamentations is like going to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. A couple years ago, my family went on vacation to Washington, D.C. We did not go to the Holocaust Museum because we wanted to have fun. And, and nobody has fun when they go to the Holocaust Museum. It's, it, it, it's not there to entertain you. It's not there to make you feel good. It's there to make you disturbed, to con confront you with the evil of humanity and, and to, to show you there is a level of suffering that most of us would like to pretend does not exist. You don't come out of there smiling and laughing. You come out shocked, silent, disturbed. And that's what happens when you spend time in Lamentations. You don't come out of it smiling. It shakes you out of your comfort zone, reminds you that there's evil in the world. So just like we skipped the Holocaust Museum, 
many of us are happy to skip right over Lamentations. So why would I come here and force you to go through it? It's not because I enjoy making people feel sad. I'm not a masochist. But it's because I know that, like me, your lives aren't all put together. That you do experience sadness and suffering and tragedy and difficult things. I, I mean, I know that this world is a beautiful and amazing place, but it's also a tragic and terrible place. And sooner or later, tragedy hits home. It hits you. It hits me. And you have a trauma, and you have to deal with it. And for times like that, Lamentations is a gift from God. It's a gift from him to help us to deal with our feelings, to deal with the evil and tragedy in our lives, and to equip us to help others in their pain as well. So if you're willing, I'm just going to give you a bird's eye view of this book and try to see why God has put this in our Bibles. So the first thing that we need to know today as we look at Lamentations actually comes from Jeremiah. And it's that this, Lamentation exists because the Jewish people suffered a great tragedy. Lamentations is sad for a reason. It's sad because something sad and disturbing happened to the people of Jerusalem. The Jewish people suffered a great tragedy. So to understand this tragedy, we're going to look again briefly at the the passage that was read for us this morning in Jeremiah 52, the last chapter of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet. He was a prophet to the nation of Judah for 40 years, and he had the unenviable ministry of telling people, repent or you will be destroyed. For 40 years, he was telling people, look, look, God told us how to live. We're supposed to be following him. We're not. We're living in evil. We're we're rebelling against God. He's going to bring destruction if we don't turn from our wicked ways. But they never listened. In fact, they, they called him a liar. They called him a false prophet. They accused him of being a traitor to the country. No one listened to his warnings. No one repented. And it turned out that Jeremiah was right because eventually the Babylonians came. And when the invading army came, they brought heartbreaking devastation with them. That's what Jeremiah 52 recounts. Um, And I don't don't know how dialed in you were today when the scripture was read, how much you were following it. Yeah, the names are are hard. That's why I had somebody else read it. But, 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 but because I was thinking about this, I'm in meditation. They, they were reading that this morning. I was just, I was crying. This is terrible. So just, I'm going to try to help us see what, what, what's going on here. What does this say? Verse 3, chapter 52. It's because the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, and in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it, and they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. So you see, it started in the ninth year. He said he goes to the eleventh year, so this is a two-year siege and famine. On the ninth day, it says in verse 6, of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. There was no food. They're starving. Uh, verse seven: uh, A breach was made in the city, and all the men of the war, uh, men of war, fled, and went out from the city by night. So that's great. They they make a hole in the wall, and all of the soldiers run away. And the Chaldeans, uh, sorry, 
Sorry, verse 8. The army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. So they just he killed everybody. They killed all the leaders. They killed the princes. They killed, the, killed them. They put out the eyes of the king. They put him in jail. Verse 12, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the 19th year of the king of Babylon, uh, 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king in Babylon, entered Jerusalem. So they come in, they invade the city, and what do they do? Verse 13, he burned the house of the Lord. He burned the temple of God, the, the seat of God's presence with the people, the sign that God was with them, burned it to the ground. They burned the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down, the entire city is on fire. All the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem, these walls that kept the city safe, that protected them from invading armies, that provided a sense of security, were destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar and the captain of the guard carried away captives, some of the poorest of the people, and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuchadnezzar and the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So most people are killed. Survivors are taken into captivity, and a few people are left to work the land. Okay, when you read about it, it doesn't, at first it doesn't hit you. It doesn't, I mean, it literally is ancient history. But this event was bigger than 9-11. This was tragedy, a two-year famine, an invasion, a slaughter, destruction of the city. One Bible teacher named Christopher Wright summarizes it this way. It's kind of a long quote. He says, This was unquestionably the most traumatic moment in the whole history of the Old Testament. Not only was there massive human suffering at every level of physical and emotional experience, not only the devastating demolition and incineration of their ancient and beautiful city, there was also the utter humiliation of their national pride as a small but independent nation that had a history in the land stretching back to Joshua. And along with that went the devastating undermining of all they had thought was theologically guaranteed, the Davidic monarchy, the city of Zion, and the very temple of their omnipotent God, all gone. What possible future could there be, and how could the present ever be endured? It was a tragedy. What comes next? after experiencing something like this. What do, you, what do you do next? People dying of starvation, invading army, marauders, coming in, killing, burning, destroying, stealing. Your life's in ruins, your possessions gone, most if not all of your loved ones dead. What happens next? What happens next is that God inspires Jeremiah to write five poems about this tragedy. And these poems become the book of Lamentations. So in the aftermath of the greatest horrific event that ever happened to the people of God, God didn't give them answers. He gave them art. 
just stop and think about how weird is this? How counter is this to your expectations? Like, is that what you think you need when you go through a tragedy? After your dad dies, or you get a cancer diagnosis, or there's another school shooting, do you think, what I really need right now is a small book of poetry? That's what God did. That's what he gave his people in the hour of their greatest need after their greatest tragedy. God says, in effect, here are five poems. Read these. They will help. The Jewish people experienced a great tragedy. And in response to that tragedy, God gave them art. It's not what we expect. It's it's not what we think we need. In fact, for certain people, this sounds like the worst thing anyone could give you. Poetry? No thank you. I don't want art. I want answers. We don't like art. We don't like poetry. We don't like the imprecision of it, the subjectivity of it. Can can, can you give me answers? Can you give me a a formula? Can you give me something I can really nail down? For some people, art, poetry, is not something you want on an ordinary day, let alone in the aftermath of a tragedy. But that is not what God did. God didn't give answers. He could have. But in the immediate aftermath of this great tragedy, he gave art. Now, as I say this, maybe you're looking ahead, you're looking at Lamentations, and you're scratching your head, and you're going, what do you mean, art? Dan, you keep calling this poetry, but I'm looking at this, and nothing rhymes. (laughs) You're right. It doesn't rhyme, but it is poetry. And it's, it's very obvious, uh, if you could read it in the original Hebrew, you could see that this is poetry, because each, book in, each, each chapter in this book is structured as an acrostic poem. Uh, so an acrostic poem is one where uh, each, each line begins with a different letter, and so in this case it's walking through the Hebrew alphabet. So it starts with uh, you know, what we say A, and then the next one would start with B, and the next one would start with C. Uh, and acrostic poetry can be uh, very simple. We can think it's a very childish form of poetry, but in, in the hands of Jeremiah and in the inspiration of God, this book is a masterpiece. This is genius-level acrostic poetry. And when you take it as a whole, this, this book is an astonishing work of art. So I'm going to get, this is going to be kind of a nerdy digression here, okay? I want you to bear with me. There's a payout. We're going to look at Lamentations, give you an overview, and I'm going to show you the, the incredible artistry in this book. So there are five chapters in the book of Lamentations, five individual poems. And each chapter is an acrostic poem based on the Hebrew alphabet. Now you notice, uh, if, you, if you flip through, it, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 5, so every chapter except 3, all of them have 22 verses. And chapter 3 has 66, which is a multiple of, of 22. That's because the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. So we've got 26. If like, that's too many, we'll just have 22. So they've got 22 letters in their alphabet, and, and each uh, stanza in these poems begins with a successive letter. So in chapter 1, you've got 22 stanzas. Each stanza has three lines, 
and the first line in a stanza starts with the letter for the acrostic poem. So uh, if we were to render this in English, so just go ahead and look at uh, chapter one, the first three verses. Uh, this may help you to have it in front of you. Uh, if we were to try to capture the sense of what's happening here in English, it may be something like this. Verse one could be, alone sits the city that was full of people. And then you've got the second line of the first stanza, the third line. Verse two, bitterly she weeps in the night. Second line, third line. Verse three, cast into exile is Judah because of her affliction. Second line, third line. All right, so the first line of each stanza is starting with a new letter. That's chapter one. Chapter two has the same structure. 22 verses, three lines each. The first word of the first line starts with a new letter. Chapter three levels it up. Chapter three is like the super acrostic. So not just the first word in each stanza starting with the new letter, but the first word in each line. So now you've got 22 stanzas, 66 lines, and it goes A-A-A, B-B-B, C-C-C, D-D-D, E-E-E. Um, so we're, we're tripling the acrostic fun in chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, it changes again. So we still have 22 stanzas in this one, but now it's only two lines per stanza instead of three. And it goes back to just the first word being the letter. So the first line, A, second line, whatever. You know, uh, second stanza, first line, B, second line, whatever. Then chapter 5 changes again. You've got 22 stanzas, but this time it's like he completely gave up. There's no acrostic whatsoever. You can start with whatever letter you want, uh, just, just free form, uh, and it's 22 stanzas. So to recap, first chapter, 66 lines, the first word of each, each third line is a new letter. Chapter 2, same thing. Third chapter, super acrostic, triple acrostic, first word in every line is part of it. Then chapter 4, you change. It, it, gets, it gets somewhat weaker, somewhat less uh, involved, just 44 lines. Or just 44 stanzas, and only two lines of stanza. And then chapter 5, do whatever you want. So, so what's, what's going on here? Did, did, did he just get tired as he was going through the book? And, and like when, he, when he did chapter 3, he used up every word he could think of that started with A for grief? He said, I'm, I'm done. I'm just going to phone it in for the rest. No, there's actually, there's actually part of the poetry, part of the artistry of the book as a whole, is the way the whole thing is structured. So just, just a little more nerdiness. Bear with me. This is, this is important. So let's dive a little deeper. Uh, poetry has meter, has, has rhythm to it. So different kinds of poetry have different kinds of meter. Uh, limericks, for example. Everybody recognizes a limerick when somebody does it. He's got a specific rhythm, 88558. Right? Uh, if you're a Shakespearean scholar, you know iambic pentameter. I just know the word. I couldn't tell you what it is. I took high school literature. Uh, and and, and you, there's a specific rhythm to the way Shakespeare writes. Okay, so, so these poems here in, in Lamentations have a specific meter. It's a, it's a meter that was often used in funerals and in laments. Uh, the Hebrew word for it was kana. And the rhythm is three, two. So in each line, so we're, we're, we're diving deep in, into the, to the text here. So each line of these poems has this meter where the first half of the line is three beats and the second half is two beats. So it's unequal. You've got one, two, three, and then one, two. And, and this rhythm has the effect of, of throwing you off. It, it makes you feel like you're limping through the poem. You can't get a good rhythm going because right when you go one, two, three, then it's one, two. One, two, three, one, two. 
And there's a reason why this meter was often used in laments and in funerals, because it's an expression of grief. It's an expression of how things don't feel right, that, that when in times of mourning or times of grief, you, you feel incomplete, that something's off, that it's not the way you expect life to be. It's not working according to its proper rhythm of one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. You're not waltzing through life anymore. One, two, three, one, two. One, two, three, one, two. It's the rhythm of grief. It's living with brokenness where something's missing, something's not right. It's walking with a limp. The very rhythm of the poetry itself expresses that, that the struggle for hope is difficult, that you can make progress and then slide right back into despair. And that message is woven into every line of this book, and it's also woven into the structure of the book as a whole. Because just as every line of the book goes one, two, three, one, two, the whole book goes one, two, three, one, two. Remember, there's five chapters to this book, and you start with three strong beats. The first three chapters, it feels like you're making progress. Chapter one, you've got, uh, you've got the 22 stanzas, and, and you've got the acrostic for the first line, and then you get to, to chapter two, and it's the same thing, and you're building to chapter three, where it's the super acrostic, and, and you're just really nailing it, right? You've got, uh, you've got the acrostic for every line, and it's bigger, and it's better, and, you, and, and in chapter three, you have the big statement of hope in the book. The verse that people memorize, the one that you sing, it's, it's chapter 3, verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's the high point of the book. It's progress. We're working through our grief. We're making some strides. We're, we're feeling better now about God and the things that we've gone through. But then you get to chapter 4. And you lose the super acrostic, and you, and, you, and you only have two lines instead of three. And then you get to chapter five, and he says, I'm not even going to try anymore. I can't come up with letters to match this. My grief is so uh, overwhelming that I, I can barely put 22 stanzas together. And the last lines of the book, chapter five, verse 20, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. That's not how a book's supposed to end. What happened in chapter 3? What happened to great is your faithfulness? Your mercies are new every morning. That's a much better way to end the book. Jeremiah, I think you need an editor. But no, this is how real life works. You, you make progress. You work through the trauma. You get to a place where you can say, great is your faithfulness. And the next day you stumble. The next day it's hard. And a couple days later you wonder, are you going to forget us forever? Where are you? One, two, three, one, two. The whole book is put together genius genius level acrostic poetry artful structure from the rhythm of from the rhythm of the individual lines to the structure of the whole book it's communicating this truth that tragedy leaves us broken that ever since the trauma happened there's a gaping wound and life cannot go back to being one two three one two three one two three one two three that ever since the tragedy it's one two three one two and we have a lot more questions 
than answers. So it is poetry. That's what I was trying to, trying to prove to you. It's poetry. It doesn't rhyme, but it moves us. And that's what God gave in the aftermath of the greatest tragedy that his people had ever experienced. He gave them art. And obviously, he did it on purpose. It's a conscious decision. Intentionally, God said, this is what you need right now. He could have given them answers. He could have given Jeremiah another prophecy and had him stand up and say, here are the things that you did, X, Y, Z, and that's what led to this, and here's what needs to happen next, and just tied it all up in a very nice, logical bow. But he didn't. Because God knows what kind of creatures we are. He made us, after all. He knows what kind of creatures we are. He knows that we aren't robots, that we're not machines, that we don't just need logical, well-reasoned, analytical answers. He knows that we are also emotional creatures. And we don't just need to be taught truth, we need to be moved by the truth. We need to experience truth on an emotional level, not just an analytical one. And that is what Lamentations does. It is inspired art tucked away in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, this little gift, this jewel that God has given to us to help us to work through grief, to deal with the complex and overwhelming feelings that come when we experience a great tragedy. And as much as we want answers... As much as our default setting after tragedy happens is to say, why, why, tell me why. I'm not moving until you tell me why. Sometimes God doesn't give us the answers we want, but he does give us art. And we have to trust that he knows what he's doing. So don't neglect this gift that God has given us. In times of tragedy, in times of suffering, don't neglect art. When the Jews had experienced the greatest tragedy in their history, God gave them a set of five poems because he knew in their time of grief that's what they needed. They needed a profound emotional experience to help them through the suffering. And that's what art gives us. And that's what art has given to me. You know, one of the reasons, one of the reasons I felt like I needed to step down for a while from ministry is it was just too much pain. It's too much for me. Uh, one former pastor I heard describe the work of, of pastoring as uh, walking with people through the wreckage of human failure. And for eight years, I felt like that's where I lived, just walking through suffering with people sharing in their trauma, willingly. Willingly, no one was forcing me to do it. It was hard. It was harder than I thought. If you'll just forgive my imperfect attempt at an acrostic, deep down I am an engineer, not an artist, but just share with you, this is something I, I, I wrote as I was kind of trying to deal with, with this struggle. Uh, during my time as a pastor, I, I shared with others in the trauma of adultery, Addiction, abortion, betrayal, bankruptcy, child abuse, 
cancer, disability, divorce, depression, death, hospitalization, homelessness, incarceration, job loss, suicide, and so much more. And I got to a point where I just couldn't feel it anymore. Or my heart got numb, and, and just to cope with it, I, you know, I would still be compassionate with people. I could still point to Scripture and pray with them and be kind and be present in their pain, but I didn't feel it anymore. You know, I got to a point where I just, I don't know, I flipped the switch and, and nothing could shock me anymore, nothing could hurt me anymore, nothing could make me cry. And you're going, how did, how, how did you not cry? <laughs> you haven't stopped crying since you've been up here today, Dan. God knew what I was going through, and he didn't want me to stay that way, so he had a gift. He gave me musical tickets. Here's how it happened. One of my daughters got obsessed with a musical that I'd never heard of called Dear Evan Hansen. She listened to it over and over and over on the internet. And, and, and as so often happens with these wonderful corporations, saw that she was listening to Dear Evan Hansen, so I got an email in my inbox saying, would you like to win tickets to Dear Evan Hansen? And I said, sure. So I entered this contest where you can put your email address in once a day and get a chance to win cheap tickets, because we couldn't afford these. This was in Chicago. It was a really high-quality Broadway-style show. So I entered the contest and I prayed, not because I thought I needed it, but because I really wanted her to be able to experience it. Um, and, uh, and lo and behold, we won. We got tickets. So we went to Dear Evan Hansen in Chicago, just my daughter and me, and, and, and I thought this is going to be a really great experience for her. It's going to be really good for her. And it was. But as I sat there with her, taking in this musical about mental illness and suicide and just kind of the struggle to find hope and put one foot in front of the other for, for the next day. Uh, it felt like that scene in The Grinch, you know, at the end where he hears the Who's singing and his heart just goes boom, 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 you know, and grows three sizes or whatever. Um, you know, I just, it's like my heart remembered how to feel again and I just started crying, you know, first for the characters up on the stage, then for me, then for my family. And then for my church. So this, this musical, this, this thoroughly secular, Tony Award-winning Broadway musical, was a gift from God that helped me through a hard time. And that's just one example how time and again, art has saved my soul. I mean, I don't know where I would be without the music of Andrew Peterson and Sarah Groves. They, they've helped me so much. In so many other ways, God has met me, not with answers, but with art. And so I urge you, I urge you not to neglect this gift. And when I say art, I mean, first of all, let's start where we, where we are today. The inspired art of Scripture, Lamentations, there's a you know, Psalms, whole book of poetry that God has given us to help us with the full range of human emotions, not just the sad times, but everything. There's riches in the Word of God. But it's more than that. God has also given us, through His common grace, music and novels and film and dance and photography and painting and all manner of art 
that are good gifts from Him to help us through times that are just so complex we can't put it into words. He's given us all these ways that we can experience these emotionally transcendent moments that do more than bare facts can do. So don't neglect it. Turn to it. We, we don't just need facts. We do need feelings. We don't just need answers. We need art. And of course, there can be good art and bad art, so be discerning. But whatever you do, don't say poetry, art, who needs that? Evidently, God thought we did. Because after the greatest tragedy his people had ever seen, he gave them poems. And we'd be, we would be fools to ignore that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gift, your many gifts that speak to us in all the facets that we are as human beings. Thank you that you address us spiritually and physically and emotionally and rationally and any other ones I might be forgetting, but you, you made us, you know us, we trust you to give us what we need when we need it. I pray especially for anyone who is going through difficulty now or has a significant trauma in their past that has broken them. Pray for everybody who walks with a limp here today that you would meet them, that your grace would be sufficient. In Jesus' name, amen.